I actually see digital currencies helping the U.S. dollar be more popular and more available throughout the world. This is the Retire Happy Podcast with John Amarino, fiduciary financial advisor at Securus Financial in the San Diego area, and Thomas O'Connell, president of International Financial Advisory Group, Inc. in Rockaway, New Jersey. Together, they'll be keeping retirement happy from coast to coast. Welcome back to another episode of the Retire Happy Podcast. I'm your host on the West Coast, John Iamarino, and I am joined by my esteemed co-host on the East Coast, Tom O'Connell. Tommy, and to everybody listening, Happy New Year. This is our first podcast of 2022. How's the new year, buddy? Uh, It's been okay. Uh, I had the COVID for the new year, but uh, happily over it. Looking forward to a great 2022, putting 2020 and 2021 behind us and moving forward and, and making great things happen for our clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad uh, glad to hear you're doing okay. I appreciate that. So we're going to start 2022 off with probably what's, everyone, what's on everyone's mind. And that is what do we think the markets are going to do in this coming year? So with that, we have a special guest on today's show. It is the Chief Investment Officer of Brookstone Capital Management, Mark Diorio. And, you know, and I, I know Tommy can echo this. Mark is uh, an unbelievable, smart, and successful uh, chief investment officer. He joined Brookstone shortly before Tommy and I came. He, he joined in 2015. And Brookstone at that time had $1.4 billion in assets. And, you know, with him, Dean and Daryl Ronconi at the helm. Uh, this firm has now got eight point four billion. So he is an unbelievably intelligent guy and is extremely helpful to all the advisors. I know both Tom and I have had long discussions with him on on the best portfolios for our clients. So I am very happy to introduce Chief Investment Officer of Brookstone Capital Management, Mark. Diorio. And introducing the Chief Investment Officer of Brookstone Capital Management, Mark Diorio. Hey guys, happy to be here. Happy New Year. Hey Mark, happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today. Definitely. Definitely. Looking forward to it. So... Uh, you know, everybody in, in 2021, I think that the headlines were, you know, the Dow's at all time highs. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of excitement uh, with the market. I think, you know, I think it's an area where people are looking for excitement, given everything else that's going on in the world today. And you did a, uh, a market video for, for the Brookstone Advisors discussing your 2022 outlook. So I would like to talk about what you think 2022 is going to be like uh, for our investors. Obviously, as an investment analyst and, and Tommy and I as a planners, we've always been told that you know market highs, while they're great, uh, often lead to euphoria and are actually considered some of the times with the point of maximum financial risk. So where do you think 
we are going to be going here in 2022. Sure. And I think it's important to remember where we came from. And so really this market in the 2021 market was all about what happened following and during the height of the pandemic in early 2020, when you had that major market sell-off down globally that led us into this really deep sell-off into the marketplace. And then you had very aggressive monetary and fiscal stimulus that came into the market to stabilize markets and the economy and consumer spending as best they could to fight or counteract the pandemic and the, and the shutdown. And so that turnaround and that stimulus really brought about this big rally in equity markets and stabilization of fixed income bond markets. And that rally has lasted throughout 2020 and then into 2021. That's how big the stimulus efforts have been. But I would point out that 2022 is really a year of transition from this recovery boom back down toward long-run economic growth rates. And the, the real big kind of point here is that monetary and fiscal policy is transitioning from hyper-stimulative to almost outright restrictive, really. Didn't, and you see this with the Federal Reserve such, sets interest rate policy in the U.S., short-term interest rates. And the markets have already sp responded early in this new year kind of negatively to the Fed's minutes, which said they're ready to raise interest rates and take a less accommodative stance. This is very different, and this is a lot more aggressive than the market was expecting. So they're taking that language very serious. And for those that don't know, just a little background, monetary policy is a key driver for asset prices. So if interest rates are low and monetary policy is trying to be accommodative, Usually asset markets, equities do very well. When the Fed is trying to be restrictive, they raise interest rates, trying to tighten liquidity so that inflation doesn't run away from us. Uh, they're being restrictive and asset prices don't do as well. So this is a very uh, disconcerting kind of time period that we're in. And I don't want to say it's uh, an, an overdo it. It's just a much more challenging period than it has been in the past. So we expect a lot more volatility this year and uncertainty because of this changing landscape and the macro backdrop. And so we could see a really good chance when we didn't get one last year of a significant correction in the market. And it could even turn into what we call an echo bear market and maybe hit that 20% decline number. That's that's the general rule of thumb of a bear market. If a, a stock, the stock market or the stock indexes drop about 20% from their recent highs, um, a, a decline between negative 10 and negative 20% would be a correction. But we could see that really develop somewhere definitely in the negative 10 to negative 20. The average correction in any given year is 14%. And we did not have a double digit correction last year. So I think that's a reasonable expectation. And really to be thought of, depending on where you're at in your investing plan of how much risk you're taking, how well diversified you are, do you have any risk-reducing assets in that portfolio? And how are you going to respond and be prepared for any type of correction that does develop? What we don't want to see is investors come in way too aggressively and then sell right at that maximum pain point because then the markets are likely to turn around at that point and then you miss it. So there's a lot going on in the marketplace, a lot different than the last year for sure. Yeah. And well, I mean, you know, and that's been a proven Thing over the past, right? Dalbar has done what thirty years of data that you know people don't follow their their investment strategies and they do panic because they're taking on more risk than they can often stomach, and then they do sell at that max maximum pain point. 
And this is one of the things that we're doing, and I know you guys are doing with clients, is making sure they have a portfolio that's consistent with their risk profile that takes into account really all of market history and balances your risk tolerance, how much you can stomach on the downside with the potential performance as well. Obviously, there's a trade-off between risk and return. And the reason I talk about and, and put together a market outlook is not for a prediction uh, and not to create or make predictions, but really is to set reasonable expectations so that you can manage through these uh, time periods. If you're caught off guard by a correction this year, I would say, well, you're not paying attention because there's clearly evidence that there's a, a higher than average likelihood for a correction. But it's also not the end of the world. It's You're still going to be an investor. You're a long-term investor from our, our point of view. But you just want to make sure that your portfolio is positioned properly or you will make those uh, challenging mistakes. And it's hard to recover from if you just sell out at, at the bottom because the markets will typically bounce pretty sharply and pretty quickly. Uh, and we see that, as you mentioned, John, time and time again. Hey, Mark, um, I know everybody's crystal ball is a little bit different. But with the anticipation, I guess, maybe what you're saying of uh, some type of market correction, I've heard from many different economics and schools of, of economic thought that some people are saying, look, it's just going to be a real short one. And then I've heard others people saying, eh, it's going to be five or 10 years before the market is able to fix itself. I, I know you're not making, you're, you're not giving us a, a set time frame or anything, but where do you kind of fall in on that? time horizon? Do you think this is more of a, a short-term cyclical thing that we're going to go through until we steady ourselves? Or do you see the underlying economics of things a little bit worse off and that it might be a little bit more prolonged? Yeah, Tom, I'm glad you brought that up. There are two viewpoints that we take into consideration or two timeframes, I would say, when we're building our, a market outlook. One is secular, which is long-term, and that goes into that five to 10-year period. The other is cyclical, shorter term, I think six to 18 months, somewhere in there. And so from a secular point of view, we're still very constructive on equities and asset prices overall. And the reason we are is because interest rates, we believe, will stay very low for an extended period of time, as they have been. It's been over 10 years since the 10-year Treasury interest rate, the marquee interest rate for 10-year horizon has been above 4%. Previously, it had gone, well, uh, gone 40 years, and it had never gone below 4%. Now, the 10-year Treasury is at uh, about one and three quarters percent, so even below 2%. And we could see this period last for a long time, which helps the valuation of stocks over time because earnings grow much faster than 2% per year. And so that'll help from a longer-term perspective. We would see this as a mid-cycle slowdown. The cycle was reset after that 30%-plus correction during the pandemic and that deep, sharp recession. That set the wheels in motion for resetting the cycle. So now we're at the point of a mid-cycle. If you think that a regular, just full cyclical cycle is four years, we're in the midpoint. A mid-cycle slowdown makes sense to us. And we also see that in the stock market showing a rotation out of those early stage growth investments that do very well out of a recovery because there's, it's more aggressive. Those have usually sold off the most and they're bouncing back to now we see the transition into kind of those value or dividend paying names that typically hold up very much better during a mid-cycle slowdown. And so that's what we're seeing develop in the marketplace. We think the, the Fed will not be able to raise interest rates as aggressively as maybe the market's starting to fear at this point. 
And so they'll have to change course at some point after their, their tightening cycle kind of uh, runs its course, slows the market, slows the economy, slows inflation down. Then they'll have to restart uh, being a little bit more accommodative. And that cycle should uh, extend um, and be supportive longer term of equity and asset prices. Oh, Mark, that's a great uh, analysis. I appreciate that. Uh, on a, maybe on a bigger, broader, uh, more global scale. Uh, we've seen a lot of different things going on. Um, one of the things that has been in the news a lot, especially towards the end of the year, was China, uh, the China economy, some of the things going on over there. In particular, they have a, a huge investment company called Evergrande, which uh, I guess has been teetering on or is technically in, in bankruptcy, where a lot of hedge funds and American hedge funds and insurance companies and pension funds have a lot of money invested in these real estate projects in China. Do you see that as a having a major impact on markets? Well, I think there is a big juxtaposition when you're talking about China and U.S. policy. So over the last year or so, and I should back up just a second, out of the pandemic lows of 2020, China was the first really to go into a recession, followed by the U.S. and developed economies. But China was also the first to come out of the re pandemic-induced recession. So it came out very aggressive. It was the first to come out of there. Uh, but then uh, policymakers in Beijing started to get uh, more conservative. And so their monetary and fiscal policy was one of austerity. And so that slowed down and hobbled the economy in China and Chinese stocks as well were hit pretty good. So they were really, really lagging the U.S. markets. And that dragged down all of the emerging markets and actually hurt other developed markets, uh, not just um, the emerging markets, but other developed markets other than the U.S. So the U.S. has definitely been the strongest of the recovery. We had the strongest fiscal and monetary stimulus support out of all the developed markets. So China has been very restrictive on their policies. And usually what happens is when you get restrictive, you see kind of as uh, Warren Buffett might say, you, you don't know who's not wearing a swimsuit until the tide goes out. Well, the tide went out and Evergrande would be one of those that got caught. So usually they do a tightening policy until one of these trouble areas actually gets into real, real big trouble and kind of makes the headlines. That's a point where they're going to reverse and have begun reversing their policy to one of reflation. So they're going to be more accommodative this year. Stimulus is uh, is going to be a little bit stronger and supportive of the economy overall. So we're where we're talking about tightening policy, they're actually being uh, less restrictive and changing and should at some point this year really start to bottom out and head higher. And so it is a, a different type of market. And China is just a different market and has a different pace of their um, and different goal of their monetary or fiscal policy. Yeah. And, and and Mark, with that, and I know we had mentioned that the, you know, because a, a lot of the the supply chain, you know, has to do with China. What are your thoughts on inflation? You know, because, and I, I've done a news interview in terms of, is it transitory? Is it long-term? I personally have, especially listened to you and, and the discussion on transitory directly linking to the supply chains, believe it's transitory, but I'm also concerned about the long-term uh, inflation because of the amount of deposits 
that were put. I, I I believe the the graph that I had told NBC was that we had we had deposited more money in 2021 uh, than any other year since World War II. So, what are your thoughts on inflation? Inflation is very tricky, and it's a much different environment than it has been. I'd mentioned earlier that we went through a 40-year cycle where interest rates didn't even drop below 4%. That was the 10-year Treasury. And then for 10 years, we've been definitely below 4% and are below 2%. We're in one of those periods now where the Federal Reserve, they always talked about raising interest rates to halt inflation or the rise of inflation from getting away away from us. That was really a hallmark of the 1970s and a leftover policy from that period. Well, we actually had a big pivot by the Federal Reserve last year, uh, which mentioned they're not really going to focus on containing inflation. They're actually going to pursue an inflation averaging approach with the goal of seeing higher inflation than we've experienced over the last 10 years. So that is a big policy pivot at its baseline core. Um, So it wants higher inflation. And the reason they do is because we have so much debt and the goal is to inflate the debt away. And that's what we did after World War II, for example, when we got over indebted. But that's a typical policy when a country gets... uh, overly indebted, uh, particularly with uh, government-based debt. So I think keep that in mind as we're talking about inflation. Now, there's a couple of big issues, though, with that story of rising inflation and why it's been a trouble to get broad-based inflation over the last 10 years, which has hovered below 2%, which is typically their bogey. So they want to see a period of it above 2%. And we're definitely getting an acute supply disruption issue here where some of the headline numbers are coming in at 6% or so. That's very high, but that's also due to these supply disruptions and this one-time reopening event and getting supply back onto line. Um, But the big disinflation trends or trends against inflation has been kind of technology and disruption and innovation, which continues to push down uh, inflation. Globalization has done that. Debt does that as well. At, at one point, debt, when debt is starting to be accumulated, it helps push up inflation. However, once you get over-indebted, which I would say we are, uh, then it has a deflationary impact. Uh, and the other is demographics. And we've done a lot of studies on this, and uh, other firms have done a good job at this looking at, uh, you know, we have a lot of baby boomers at this point retiring, and that's not really having that surge that you would see if inflation was going to pick up. With them retiring, you see savings increase. And so the deposits that you're referencing, John, I think because interest rates are very low, what it's doing is forcing people to save more in traditional savings as opposed to invest it. And we're always wondering, geez, there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines, even as the market has had good returns or good rally, there's still a lot in savings. And it's funny, but it's if you were to go back 12 years before the global financial crisis, you'd get 4 to 5% on your CD and your savings account was a few percent. Now you're not getting that at all. So you can't make up and there's no money coming into those savings accounts and those CDs anymore. So it's pushed savings higher in kind of a, what you'd say, a pushing on a string kind of policy, which is, oh, geez, you wanted people to spend that money. That's why you had low interest rates. You weren't compensating. It actually has the reverse impact where people save more. And when you save more money, it sounds like a good idea, except economic growth and investment actually uh, suffers in that case. And so I, I would say that a lot of these inflationary concerns are 
acute or transitory, but it'll be a little mismatched because you may see something like housing stay strong if interest rates stay low because we have a mismatch in supply and demand dynamics right now in the housing market. Uh, Autos, you could also see a mismatch. And some of the other areas that might take a longer lead time to correct, where other areas you may see quick disinflation uh, as more and more use of technology comes through. So Mark, with, I guess, the idea or the thought process that even if the Fed does raise rates a a couple of times or three times this year, we're still going to be in a relatively historic, low interest rate environment. So I guess I'm kind of veering off track a little bit, but it's because of something that you said about the extra savings or the, the increased amount of savings and low interest rates people are finding those uh, investments in. What would be some of the alternative strategies? Or are there more non-market correlated options? Uh, are we stuck with treasury rates or municipal bond rates or high-grade corporate rates or are there things that we can do to help our poor, our clients create a more, I guess, income-focused uh, type of portfolio? There is. And I think, I think what's interesting is, and we see this after every crisis, which is we see advisors leave the business because it gets more and more challenging. So I saw that after the 2000-2002 crisis. Yes, I was around then <laughs> managing money. So that was the tech boom and bust. And you saw advisors leave. Why? Because it was very easy. It was a very easy business in the 90s because you had this great growth that was coming in year after year. No one was complaining because markets were just heading higher. And then you had this big sell-off and it looked, and it was three years long, um, and you had a very challenging environment. And then you go into uh, the global financial crisis and even more difficult um, with all the different noise and all the different moving parts that that had uh, to deal with. And then you go through the pandemic and another challenge uh, of how they're going to use the stimulus and then take the stimulus back. And then what is policy going to look like? And bonds have been driven very low in terms of yield. And so when we look out going forward, your forward return on bonds is linked to your starting interest rate. So if bonds are yielding 2% and inflation is 2.5%, your return over the next 10 years, if it's a 10-year bond, would be negative a half a percent annually in real terms. So you lose your purchasing power, which is one of the main reasons to build an investment portfolio is to preserve your purchasing power over time, and then two, to grow that purchasing power over time. So bonds should be thought of as reducing risk in a portfolio, and that's their role. So when equities sell off, a lot of times you'll see bonds do well, but you can't think of them as a return driver. And that is one thing that has really been missed over the last couple of years, and I don't think a lot of advisors have adjusted to, and what we spend a lot, a lot of time on is actually talking about the bond portion, the portion that's never talked about on TV, where you have, it's all about stocks and, and this and that, but Bonds, particularly when you're in the pre-retiree and the retiree, become more and more important. How do you manage that conservative part of the portfolio? It's more challenging than it's ever been. There's never been a time where the kind of the 60-40, 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio has yielded, that's dividends and interest, less than it has now. And so this is, I, I believe, the main challenge. Volatility is one, but this is the main challenge when you're thinking about building a portfolio and an investment plan over time, which is how do I deal with these ultra low interest rates from an investment standpoint? And how does my portfolio get more conservative 
as I'm in nearing and into retirement, that it's going to last and outpace inflation over time. So one of those uh, ideas is that we build a core plus satellite allocation framework, meaning what's your core portfolio look like? What are the asset classes that should be in your core portfolio? And then what are the satellite allocations, maybe those non-traditional ideas that can be bolted on to that core portfolio to either enhance the potential return, reduce the overall risk, or increase that organic income from coming from the portfolio? And so uh, one of the ideas that we've built in with reducing risk and really maintaining that kind of traditional moderate return level is using something called hedged equity, which is you're getting your return from the equity side of the portfolio. But it's not just the equity market. You actually have a hedge bolted on to the equity ownership. So if you own the, the S&P 500, there's a hedge that's there to reduce the risk. So what the hedge does, it's a small portion of the portfolio. If the market is declining, that hedge, it's it's an option overlay, actually is rising in value. And that's dealt one-to-one to to do that. We've augmented that and and continue uh, to augment that suite of offerings in the hedged equity space. Number two, we've looked at very unique areas to generate income, something called income-based structured notes, which most most investors don't have access to those. And there's a lot of kind of noise around what they are. But what we've done is built a strategy around that and been able to put those into fiduciary-based portfolios in a real thoughtful manner. And so those generate outsized returns. Uh, the uh, It's not linked to starting interest rates, uh, but you're getting that organic cash flow. Another is um, there's been some innovation, some exchange-traded funds, which actually use a really interesting covered call strategy where you can sell covered calls and you'll receive the income for selling those calls. And we, it might be beyond the scope of this conversation for what that, uh, what that is doing and, and all the mechanics thereof. But um, as an advisor, it's our role to really look at those and make sure they're appropriate for a, for a portfolio. And we've done the due diligence. And uh, as long as you are aware of how they work, they can fit inside a comprehensive portfolio and can complement what you're doing overall. So we continue to look at innovative ideas and bring those into the portfolio. And I mentioned one word there that I always think is the most important word, which is appropriate. Sometimes I get asked, what's the best investment? I'd say, well, you don't know what the best investment is until hindsight. But what I can tell you is, are these assets appropriate given your risk tolerance and your goals? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's the huge thing. And and I completely agree with you that, you know, the the traditional 60-40 portfolio, a lot of people are saying, you know, given today's environment, you know, that's, that's a thing of the past and we must evolve. And, and really, you know, I, I always tell, you know, when I, when I teach retirement workshops or whatnot, and, and I know Tommy does this too, that listen, you know, if you're a do it yourself or that this game in retirement is completely different than your accumulation, right? Now you're, you're absolutely depending, your livelihood depends on these assets. And, you know, not all of these strategies are available on the retail side and they're, far too advanced for a typical do-it-yourself investor to handle. I mean, you guys have a team of certified financial analysts led by you, you know, and all your resources to put together these portfolios. And one other area I want to mention that I'd like to talk about 
because it's the evolving marketplace, is the rise of Bitcoin and maybe some of those other trendy, I think the doggy coins or whatever they call them, dodgy. <laughs> um, what's, you know, because Brookstone, you guys now have your own models that you guys rolled out and and is there a place for Bitcoins even in a retirement portfolio? So Bitcoin is a very interesting asset. So let me define it a little bit. And there is a lot of noise out there around what Bitcoin is, what it does, what it could be, and so forth and so on. And part of our job, I think, is to de demystify it and where it plays a role, if it plays a role. Uh, and I use the word appropriate again. Is it appropriate? So Bitcoin, we view as an emerging asset class. It is not a currency like the U.S. dollar would be. Um, it is a currency of the Bitcoin network, for example, to the extent that you want to participate in the network, what it does and what its value proposition is. And Bitcoin is just one of really that entire asset class of what's called cryptocurrencies, but that's a catch-all term. There's only one Bitcoin, for example. There's a couple thousand altcoins. That's kind of the broad name of them, but they all have different use cases. But Bitcoins is pretty specific. It's the first global digital decentralized, scarce asset. So that may not mean anything to you or it may mean a lot, lot to you. And so for some investors, it means a lot and others, it doesn't mean anything. So global meaning it's available globally, digital meaning there's no physical form. So if you ever see a picture of a coin with a B on it, it there, there's actually no physical Bitcoin. It's just digital. Decentralized means nobody's controlling it. In other words, when I said the Federal Reserve, that's the central bank of the U.S., well, they set interest rate policy and they, they oversee banks and um, reserve requirements and a, a number of other things. But they're setting policy in the U.S. and the Treasury handles the, the value of the U.S. dollar and, and things like this. Well, nobody's controlling it. What decentralized is and what crypto part of the cryptocurrency is, is it's a protocol that really set the schedule for how do you issue Bitcoin. And so it's just code, computer language. And so it's very specific of how much Bitcoin it's going to issue. So there's only going to be 21 million coins. There's about um, 19 million uh, close thereof in existence today. Uh, so that leaves only about 2 million more to come into existence over the next 100 years, for example. The Bitcoin is minted uh, and produced bas basically every 10 minutes per the code. And so this sounds funny, but for those computer scientists, they may say, well, code is law. <laughs> so that's where you get some people very excited that's saying, well, we're just going to listen to the rules of this computer code because we think it's fair, equitable, reasonable. Uh, and then every 10 minutes, new Bitcoin is issued. And the way it's issued is you have a number of what they call miners. Miners basically compete to verify and secure what's called the blockchain. That's the technology underlying Bitcoin. So blockchain essentially is there's a ledger that says Sally owns one Bitcoin, John owns three. Well, Sal And if Sally tries to send three Bitcoin to John, the computer, the miners would say, no, you can't do that because we're maintaining and you only have one Bitcoin, so you can't do that. So what Bitcoin actually did was uh, initiate digital scarcity, meaning you can't make just digital copies. Uh, and it's called the uh, Byzantine General's problem or was called it in computer science, which was, okay, how do you verify that there's only one version of this digital 
copy. Uh, uh, and so it's a basically a ledger that just keeps track of these. So the best way to think about Bitcoin, I think, uh, especially when you're just getting involved, is to think of it as digital gold. It has those type of properties, meaning nobody really con controls it. It's not a, a debt issue of anybody, uh, whereas treasury bills are, are debt of the U.S. government and uh, the Japanese government bonds are debt of the, the Japanese government and so forth and so on. So it's not the it's not backed by any country. So that leads to a lot of volatility in this marketplace. And when I say a lot of volatility, it's five times as volatile as the stock market. It spends about half of its existence. Uh, for the, uh, it came into existence about 2009, really probably started to trade in this, what's called the secondary market, kind of where you see these volumes in 2012. So in oh, about 10 years, it's been down 50% uh, from its high almost 50% of its existence. So in other words, if you own it, you have to be expected uh, as a base case that you'll be down 50%, uh, one if not multiple times in your ownership. We do not see the volatility going away. Um, so it is a volatile asset, but the technology may be so revolutionary uh, and it's so early in its adoption that it may be worth for some investors a small allocation to that a 1% allocation is not unreasonable. A 2% is not unreasonable. You don't have to own it. It's not necessarily taking over the US dollar, which I've heard some of that. That's not really what it's doing. It may be taking over some of the role that gold played uh, historically. And so having a piece of that in the portfolio can make sense at, if you understand that it's going to be wildly volatile. <laughs> Uh, and it's complementing your other assets. It doesn't have the same drivers that um, stocks or bonds would. Bonds, interest rates, stocks, earnings growth. Well, Bitcoin doesn't have either of those. Similar to gold doesn't have either of those. It's just an asset that has uh, some scarcity value to it. I absolutely love that comparison uh, to, to digital gold. Absolutely love it. So, Mark, do you think countries or economic systems like China, who've come out and said, we're creating our own cryptocurrency, Mexico. Uh, I'm assuming that the United States will do that as well at some point. Will that have an effect on the uh, outlying cryptocurrencies like the, the Bitcoins and the Dogecoins and the things like that and other cryptocurrencies like that? No, not necessarily. I would say that um, Bitcoin being unique, Dogecoin, for example, is just kind of a part and parcel of the, maybe the time period speculative excess. It doesn't have the same network or security uh, or value overall. Uh, it could be around with us for a while, but it's not the same type of, of asset. Um, matter of fact, there is no scarcity with Dogecoin. Uh, they do not have a cap, a consistent issuance schedule that Bitcoin does, for example. Uh, the second biggest cryptocurrency is called Ethereum or Ether. Well, that network's a little bit different. It wants to be a computer system where you can kind of rent or buy space with and time with and borrowing some of those resources and to do that you spend the cryptocurrency of that network, Ether, as part of that, that role. So, uh, and there's a number of these different projects and so forth, kind of uh, similar to uh, the early days of the internet, where there's a lot of different companies trying to figure it out, figure out what the use cases were, what made sense, uh, and what's sustainable. Now, with one of the value propositions, the key one for Bitcoin, for many, is decentralized, meaning no government is backing it. So that's the appeal of Bitcoin. And if you use, if those countries come online with their own kind of 
version of cryptocurrencies, well, it would miss that whole point. And as we've seen with the dollar, the Chinese yuan, uh, they don't cap the amount that they issue. Matter of fact, we're going the other way, trying to issue more. And as a matter of fact, in, you could make the argument, and this is what we saw going into the pandemic, that the world is still short of U.S. dollars, um, and meaning we may need more of them. Otherwise, it's going to create this acute stress on the system when there's a huge demand to sell assets and then because of the need for U.S. dollars just from a transaction perspective. What I do think may be happening and may happen with the central bank digital currencies would be it would start to push out a lot of those smaller, poorly run currencies in these smaller countries. So let's say there's 200 currencies or 100 and something currencies in the in the world. It starts to push out all of those. And so now, because now if it's digital, maybe those people in other smaller countries can access the big currencies without the currency controls of their own country. And so I think that's what might develop where you have uh, more and more use of the major currencies overall. And we start to get rid of these. And you, you, you may hear some of these stories uh, about these currencies collapsing. Uh, we've had a few of these over the last few years, even a couple recently. That'll probably continue to fall because of bad policies. I mean, this happens all the time in these small countries. And so it really hurts the citizens that didn't really have control over this. And now, uh, the digital nature may and the and cell phones may give them access to these much more stable options. So you're talking about countries like Turkey, which is going through a huge upheaval at this point. Places like uh, Venezuela; mm -hmm. uh, th those would be some of those examples. It, definitely, Ex spot on. Okay, and then from what you just said, then. Again, I'm kind of going off track a little bit just because of the things that you're saying to me. So uh, your, would your uh, position then be that the U.S. has a, a ways to go as the world currency versus uh, some other economists out there who are saying that the, the U.S. dollar's best days are behind it and uh, we probably would have trouble hanging on as the world's currency? Sure. On the U.S. dollar, I know that it is, a, it is a popular topic, especially with the amount of debt that we have, that maybe the best days are behind us and the U.S. dollar. I do not necessarily see that being the case. Now, the value of the U.S. dollar may decline, but that's what inflation is. And so that's the purchasing power of the dollar. But the dollar is traded as a fiat currency in relative pairs, so it can go up or down. And recently, we've seen it go up relative to most other currencies. I actually see digital currencies helping the U.S. dollar be more popular and more available throughout the world. And so I, I think that you have this idea of, well, a currency should be a store of value, um, a means of account, and a payment method. Well, there's no reason why it has to be all three necessarily. I do see the, the U.S. dollar still being the dominant payment method for sure, Globally, still being the most uh, sophisticated of the, of the currencies with the support around it. But I do see a world where some direct trading goes on without the U.S. dollar. Historically, the US, uh, around the world, oil was priced in U.S. dollars and then traded in U.S. dollars. Now you may see, and there's reports of this, that China and Russia are trading oil 
but they're trading in a currency other than the U.S. dollar. Well, that actually makes sense for those two countries. I'm not taking a stand on that. I'm just saying that that's what probably is going to develop. But it's not necessarily going to be the worst thing in the world for the for the U.S. dollar. It actually, there's a lot of pressure on being the world's reserve currency and how we conduct monetary policy essentially for the world and export that to the world when we want to start to onshore some of our more our domestic capabilities. And so I, I actually see this working out for us. And I know it won't be clean and there'll be a lot of negatives around that. But that's the whole reason to build an investment portfolio, because the value of the dollar or inflation can and will be with us, um, just like it has been with us for since the U.S. dollar came to be and other currencies. But the U.S. dollar is what we're talking about is you want to build an investment portfolio that grows faster than the rate of inflation over time. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh Mark, that's going to be about all the time we have for today's podcast. Uh, you know, I know we we appreciate you coming on. You're you're obviously a very busy man uh, leading the way over there at Brookstone. And you know, thank you for all your insights and, and great knowledge um, that you share with us today. Tommy, you got anything? No, I'd, I'd just like, again, like John said, uh, we know how busy you are. Uh, especially this time of the year. Um, so just want to say a great big thanks to you for taking the opportunity to do this with us. And also for uh, the years uh, of good guidance that uh, we lean on you very heavily for the information and the portfolio designs for our clients. And if we haven't said it in the past, uh, we really do appreciate everything that you do. We mean that truly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, guys. That means a lot to me. All righty. Well, that concludes today's episode of the Retire Happy Podcast, and we look forward to seeing you on our next show. Take care. Bye, everybody. It's easy to get in touch with John and Thomas. If you're more on the West Coast, give John a call at 858-935-6210. That's 858-935-6210, or go online to gosecurus.com. That's gosecurus.com. If you're more of an East Coaster, then call Thomas, 973-394-0623. That's 973-394-0623. And online at internationalfinancial.com. That's internationalfinancial.com. And you can, of course, always just check the description or the show notes section of today's show for all that contact information. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting apps. And we'll see you next time on the Retire Happy Podcast. Investment advisory services offered through Brookstone Capital Management, LLC, BCM, a registered investment advisor. BCM, Securus Financial, and International Financial Advisory Group are independent of each other. Insurance products and services are not offered through BCM, but are offered and sold through individually licensed and appointed agents. The opinions expressed by John Iamarino, Thomas O'Connell, and guests on this show are their own and are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Past performance cannot be used as an indicator to determine future results. Any strategies mentioned may not be suitable for everyone. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you. Before acting on any information mentioned, please consult with a qualified tax or investment advisor to determine if it is suitable for your specific situation. This program is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subjects covered.